Well, the world lost maybe, uh, maybe the greatest preacher of a generation on Friday. Tim Keller, uh, longtime pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, went to be with Jesus after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. If you've ever heard him preach or read his writings, winsome, profound student of scripture, he understood uh, culture. He saw the value of, of loving your particular context and the city in which God placed you. Tim Keller made the gospel so wonderfully clear. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. He would say again and again. I still get chills thinking about the sermon he preached here in our sanctuary in 2019. Keller has written a number of incredible books, which we have in our library. One of those books is simply titled Prayer. And he talks about how um, a lot of recent thought leaders on prayer have sort of fallen into one of two camps, two perspectives on prayer. The first is that prayer is sort of a means of, of experiencing God's love and, and to know this oneness, this, commun- this communion, this intimacy with God. And the other camp says that prayer is all about calling on God to, to bring his kingdom. It's wrestling, it's contending with God to move and to act. And what Keller does so masterfully, as he's done so many times in his preaching and in his, in his messages, is to say that it's never this either or. It's never just either intimacy and communion with God and contemplative uh, oneness with God, nor is it just seeking to advance God's kingdom. It is communion and kingdom. And I'll share this one quote. Prayer, he writes, is both conversation and encounter with God. We must know the awe of praising his glory, the intimacy of finding his grace, and yes, the struggle of asking his help, all of which can lead us to know the spiritual reality of his presence. So today we're wrapping up this series called When You Pray. We've said the only thing in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only time the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them something, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. There's no record of anyone asking Jesus, would you teach us how to lead or how to, how to heal or how to cast out demons? And it's actually a surprising request from the disciples. Because as faithful uh, young Jewish men, these disciples would have known all about prayer. They had grown up their whole lives praying. They had memorized Psalms from the Old Testament and, and learned to recite these prayers and other prayers throughout the day, every day. But in their mentor's prayer life, they saw something that was different. A passion and power, intimacy and awe, communion and kingdom. They looked at Jesus and they saw someone with this connection to God like they had never seen before. Maybe you've known someone like that in your life that when you hear them pray or when they pray with you, they pray over you, it's like they just come alive in the presence of God. I had a mentor in grad school who taught preaching and I remember when I first met this man named Daryl. I was trying to decide which seminary to go to, and I really wanted to go to a school that was going to help you know, teach us how to preach. I had visited other seminaries where they had entire departments and courses that were dedic- dedicated to things like oratory and developing your preacher voice, whatever that is, and they had studios where they would film you and critique your mannerisms and tell you when you're using your hands too much like I'm doing right now. They had experts in communication theory and homiletics. 
But when I met with Daryl, I asked him, how do you help a young guy like me learn how to preach? And I told him about these other schools and their impressive preaching departments. And I'll never forget sitting in this tiny little office, you know, barely enough room for the two of us amidst the stacks of all of his books. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, Brian, that sounds really important. And you know that we don't have that kind of stuff here. But if you want to come study here, what we will do is we will teach you how to pray. And I think the preaching will come, but we're going to teach you how to pray. And I was like, dang, that's a good answer. (laughs) And so I went. And just to be surrounded by people like Daryl, who people who prayed with a passion that I had never experienced before, an expectation that God would show up when we asked him to, to come and be present with us. Sometimes in the middle of a lecture, the, the professor would just stop the, the, the talking and we would all get on our knees and we'd start praying for the church. And to this day, it's like it lit a fire in my own heart that, that I wanted to have, I wanted that kind of a prayer life. The disciples saw something in Jesus they had never seen before. From the beginning of his ministry all the way through the end, his closest friends had this front row seat to watch the greatest prayer who ever lived. Prayer that changed hearts and healed the sick and even raised the dead. And they wanted in on that. So one day, the disciples gathered the courage to finally ask, Lord, teach us how to pray. And for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have just treasured this this prayer that he taught them. We find this in Matthew chapter six, and we're gonna open up uh, the gospel of Matthew to Matthew six, starting in verse nine. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open this up so you can see this. I'll be reading from the NIV here. This then is how you should pray. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. But here's the thing. There is no should in the, the actual text. Okay? The, the word in the original language, the closest thing we have is the word, it's not even really a word, thusly. Pray thusly. Now, why is that important? In giving us the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is not telling us you should pray, you need to pray, you have to pray the exact words in this exact order. These were not just words to be recited. This was a model for a lifetime of prayer. Jesus is saying, here's a way to pray that delights our Heavenly Father because he knows the Father's heart. He knows what, what pleases the Father. It's the hallowing of his name and the bringing of his kingdom and his will being done and providing for his children and forgiving them and freeing them to forgive and delivering his children from evil. This is a way to pray, Jesus says, without having to wonder, is God okay with this, with what I'm saying? Here's how Jesus begins. Our Father. And if any of you grew up in proximity to the Catholic tradition like me, we called this prayer the Our Father, right? It's the Lord's Prayer, and it's also the Our Father, okay? Same prayer. It's interesting. There's no record of anyone in history ever calling out to God in prayer and calling him Father until Jesus. Think about that. Jesus revolutionized the way that we pray, starting with the first two words of his prayer. And by the way, it's a good thing that we would pray this prayer together because it starts our father, not my father. This is not an individualistic prayer. This is for God's people together. Now, what I want us to eventually, where I want to eventually land today is to zero in on the first request 
in the Lord's Prayer. And it may also be the most misunderstood part of the prayer. But before we do that, just to kind of step back and get a sense for the shape of the Lord's Prayer, the overall shape. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus lays out six things we should be asking for when we pray. Six things. The hallowing of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, his will being done, the receiving of provision for each day, the forgiving of our sins and our learning to forgive those who've hurt us, and then delivering us from temptation and evil. Six asks. Now, some scholars have separated these six out into two halves. The first half being the hallowing of God's name, his kingdom coming, and his will being done. Name, kingdom, will. That's the first half. The second half, the receiving of daily bread, forgiveness and the ability to forgive, and then guidance and deliverance from evil. Now, here's another angle, and not to geek out too much. I know school's almost out. You're like, we had field day on Friday. Hello. This is not how, like, summer is here. The brain is off. But if you were to look at these two halves and then look at the pronouns that Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer. And I said prep, I kept saying preposition in the 930 and there were just like some grammatical cops everywhere who just pounced on me after the service. These are pronouns, okay? (laughs) So if you look at the first half of the Lord's Prayer and you look at the pronouns, it's your, your, your. Then if you get to the second half and you look at the pronouns, it's us, our, us, we, us, and us. Hey, what's that all about? Your, 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 then, then and only then, us, us, us. It's as if Jesus is saying, I know that you need bread. I know that you need forgiveness. You need deliverance. Your father who loves you knows this. But actually, we have even greater needs than that. We need for the Father's name to be hallowed in hearts and in the world. We need for his kingdom to come. We need for his will to be done on earth as in heaven. Yes, we will experience human flourishing once we receive daily bread and once we learn to forgive and are forgiven. But Jesus is telling us that we will also experience the fullness of human flourishing when the Father's name is treasured and treated with reverence in our hearts and in the world. And when our father, Father's kingdom comes and his reign is breaking through and when his will is being done so that heaven is touching down into this world. You're before us. More critical than the us requests is the your requests. It's when we focus on the your requests that these us requests are put into perspective. And and I'm indebted to Daryl Johnson for this next insight. He says that the us requests are actually embedded into the your requests. If all God does and answers, all God does is answer the top half of the Lord's prayer, automatically it answers the bottom half. If all God does is to hallow his name and to bring his kingdom and to see to it that his will is done, it automatically answers the bottom half of daily bread and forgiveness breaking through and deliverance for all. Does that kind of make sense? So that's the shape. That's the arc of the Lord's Prayer. One other thing before we focus on the first request, look at the verbs of the prayer. This really helps the prayer come to life. Here are the verbs. Do we, have the, do we have this This next slide? Be hallowed, come, be done, 
Give, forgive, lead and deliver. So two things to know about these verbs. Aren't you glad we're diving into verb parsage today? Two things about the verbs. First, each verb is in the imperative move. What, what is an imperative? It's a command. Clean your room, brush your teeth, go to bed. Okay, those are imperative commands. Now, in the Greek language in, in which the New Testament was written, the imperative mood, a command, was never used when addressing a superior. Never. Like you would never... Even in our day, you would never go into the governor's office and just start demanding things. Fix that, change this, cancel that tax. You just wouldn't do it. In the ancient world especially, you would never use the imperative in addressing your superior. This is why kids, my kids never boss me around and tell me what to do. That's, yes, that's kind of meant to be a little bit ironic here at this point in the sermon. In the ancient world, you would never use an imperative to address somebody who was your superior, all right? Jesus is teaching us how to pray. Jesus, who knows his father's heart better than anyone else, and what does he say? Here's the God of the universe, the superior of all superiors, and how does he want us to pray? Jesus says, I want you to use the imperative. Be hallowed, come, be done, give, forgive, lead, all commands. We're not just asking, we are commanding, be hallowed your name, come your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make it happen in this world, Father. Do you see like the dignity, the authority that Jesus entrusts to us when he teaches us how to pray like that? Jesus, who knows the Father's heart, he says the Father wants his children to come to him and not just be polite and not just ask and not just be nice. You demand, you pray with expectation, boldly. Make it happen, Father, because we cannot make it happen. Which is why, secondly, every verb in the Lord's Prayer, it's not just in the imperative, it's also in the passive it's in the passive because only God can do this. Only God can cause his name to be hallowed. Only God can bring his kingdom. So the prayer is not actually let us hallow your name. We're not the ones doing it. The prayer is, Father, you do what we cannot do. Father, you're the only one who can cause your name to be hallowed. Make your kingdom come. See to it that your will is done in this world. It is not up to us. Can you kind of feel like the weight of the responsibility kind of lifting a little bit in that moment? We can't make this happen, but Father, you can. And you ask us, your son teaches us that what you want for us to do is to come before you in all your glory and holiness and power and to command you to do it, to beg you to do it. Make it happen, God. So hopefully that gives us a sense of the shape and the power of this prayer that Jesus teaches us, the dignity he gives us. Now, with the rest of our time, what I want to do is then to look a little closer at the first ask of the Lord's Prayer. And it may be the most misunderstood. Jesus says, when you pray, here's how I want you to shape your prayers. And he says, start with this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
He says, when you pray, your first and deepest longing, this is what Jesus wants you to desire first, is that the name of God would be hallowed, made holy above every other name in this world. Father, cause your name to be hallowed. Do whatever you need to do in me, in my family, in this church, in our city, in the world, so that your name will be hallowed. Now, here's why these four words, hallowed be your name, are, are so important. And we can't just kind of skip over them or gloss over them so that we could get to the really meaty stuff in the Lord's Prayer. These four words are so critical. And this has really awakened in me a tendency in my own prayer life. Most of the time when it comes to sort of my praying, it happens first thing in the morning. And so see if you can identify a little bit with this scenario. I wake up first thing, hopefully it's sufficient time before the kids wake up. I sit down in a comfortable chair, I've got some coffee, but it hasn't kicked in yet. And the problem is, even though I've got a little bit of margin, you know, in silence for prayer, even with the best of intentions, it's like there's a clock ticking away in the back of my mind. All the obligations and the to-do list and the breakfast that I'm going to have to, you know, we're going to have to get for the kids, basically everything we're going to have to do to get the kids out the door. And then there's the sermons that aren't written and the emails that are awaiting a response and the complaints that I haven't responded to. And if I'm not careful, all these things will inevitably make me want to rush through prayer as if it were one more task, a noble task, but one more task that I just got to check off the list. And when that happens, when I allow my mind to just get rushed and hurried and distracted, my prayers tend to sound a lot more like this. God, here's what I need. Here are the people that I'm supposed to pray for. Here's my list of needs. Um, oh, I forgot about that person that I would tell them that I, that I would pray for them and I haven't yet, so I'm gonna pray for them right now. Mostly what I, just bless me, help me, protect me, give me, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go get the oatmeal ready. Now, I, wanna, I do want to be clear about this. There is no concern, no longing, no request, small and petty and insignificant it may be that you would bring before God that he does not want to hear and receive and respond to from your life. But when Jesus, who knew more than anyone else what it means to connect deeply with the heart of the Father, Jesus says, this is where you should begin. Not with the list, not with what you need. Start by asking for God's name to be treasured in your life. God, all of these things that I, I, I wanna bring before you, I, I know that you care, but this is where I'm gonna start. Let your name, your greatness, your glory be the greatest treasure of my heart. So maybe when you sit down and begin and you're starting to kind of, the clock is ticking and you're, the, the, you're thinking about all the needs. Maybe you, you, you begin with a, a psalm and you just open up and you let these words kind of start your time of prayer. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and just let that soak in. Lord, let your name be hallowed today. There's so much on my mind but I'm gonna begin here. Let your name be hallowed. And see, when our prayers begin with, with declaring God's greatness, then everything that comes after, 
his kingdom coming, his will being done, his daily bread, the power to forgive, the grace to be forgiven, deliverance from evil. All these things then serve to magnify the name of God in this world and in our lives. Does that make sense? Now let's talk about the word hallow because it's not a very common word. And just to be clear, it's not hallowed be your name. That would be bad theology. Hallowed. Probably the most well-known use of this in history. Do we have any history buffs here? Anybody know when this word is used? The Gettysburg Address. In a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. Then on the polar opposite side of culture, the only other time we use this word is on what day? Halloween, that's right, which, which is a contraction of all Hallows' Eve, which I find kind of ironic, right? There's not a lot of hallowing of his name on Halloween, but there you go. To hallow something, it means to value it as holy, to treasure it as something infinitely valuable, one of a kind. And I used to think that hallowed was an adjective here or an adverb, but as we've said, in the original Greek, these are all commands, they're verbs, we don't really have a translation for this. The closest thing, and it often shows up in translations, is let your name be hallowed. But see, even that doesn't really work well. We don't, we don't talk like that in our day. Like when Allie wants me to do something, she doesn't say, Brian, let the bed be made or let the kids be picked up at carpool or let the laundry be folded because it sounds like the laundry is going to fold itself. And I'll probably respond with something sarcastic. When Jesus says, this is how you pray, he says, first thing you do before anything else, you pray, Father, you cause your name to be hallowed, treasured, valued, esteemed before and above everything else in this world. Now, let me talk about the name. Hallowed be his name. In the scriptures, the a name was not just a way of labeling somebody. Names were a reflection of someone's character, of their being. So then the question is, what is God's name? Because it's not God, right? Like our president's name is not president. God's personal name, which he first revealed to Moses, is this Hebrew word, Yahweh. This unique Hebrew word, it means something like, to the, as best we understand, I am that I am. And going back thousands of years, the Israelites, God's people, had such a deep and reverent respect for this name. For them, the name of God was so sacred, so holy, that nobody would ever dare say the name out loud. They wouldn't even pronounce the word. In fact, we're not exactly sure how it's pronounced to this day in the Hebrew language. To this day, there are Jewish communities, Orthodox Jewish communities, where they do not utter the name. In fact, God's name uh, was so treasured among his people that when the scribes and the religious leaders would write down the name, they would use a fresh pen every time. Scribes would sometimes bathe themselves before and after they wrote it because they regarded it as such a holy word. It's why it's biblical to wash your kid's mouth out when they swear. Now, this fascination with a name, in our day, you know, it, it, okay, great. It, that sounds a little bit over the top. Like, we can't even say it. Uh, that's a little pre, prehistoric or superstitious or Harry Potter type stuff. Like, we don't take names that seriously, do we? And yet, every day we are inundated 
bombarded by a multi-billion dollar industry that firmly believes in the power of names. Companies will pay hundreds of millions of dollars to have their names placed on a stadium because they want people to know the name. I was thinking this week about some of the names we value, we treasure in this world. Names like Apple. And it just, you know, we think of Apple and its innovation and technology. And and now it's one of the biggest names in the world. Or the name Nike, a name that is synonymous with athletic greatness and winning and competition. Um, How about the name Target? I was in, uh, this is intentional. I was in Minneapolis this week. And if you've been to Minneapolis, Target, the Target logo is everywhere. I mean, there's the Target Center Arena, the soccer team. We went to one of the MLS games and they have the Target logo on every single jersey, although it's called a kit if you're into football. A lot of us like to wear certain names. They're called name brands. Then there are the names of iconic celebrities that we just tend to lift up. And when they're really famous, really iconic, it just, it just takes one name. Luca, Dak, Beyonce, Tiger, right? Scotty is not quite there yet, but he's on his way, especially if he can pull it out today. So whenever I get to this part of Jesus' prayer, there's always a little bit of a tug on my heart, this little confession, because all too often, it's the other names out in the world that seem to dominate my life. Whether it's an important person, or maybe a spouse, or a significant other, or another kind of God, like money, or success, or stuff. Then I start to think about all the time and energy and how many of my waking hours I spend trying to hallow another name And that's my own. How hard I work because I want people to think that I'm valuable and important. How anxious I get about what people might think or what they might say when I'm not around. How how tempted I am to posture and sort of maneuver my way through life in a way that, that, that helps my reputation, my name. None of us will ever say it or pray it, but we live captive to these words, hallowed be my name. And I long for God to come and just begin to to strip away and to wash clean and to heal that selfish movement of my thoughts and my heart. And just to think what God, what, what might happen if there was like a room full of people or a church full of people, broken, imperfect, and yet at the same time dying to self and ask a generation that is willing to say, God, I am going to put your name before my name today. I'm gonna elevate your name before any other name that I am tempted to give my attention and my focus to today. Father, let your name be treasured and reverenced and esteemed above any other name in this world today. And this is one of the great mysteries of our God, that he has allowed the holiness, the hallowedness of his name. And this is kind of where we're going to wrap up. He's allowed the hallowedness of his name to somehow be bound up with the way you and I live, which is why your life, it matters. Your life is so very important because we are reflections of the character of our God in the eyes of this world. And so if we're going to do more than just recite these words once a week, if we long for this prayer to change us, then what we're really saying is, God, I long for you to come and change my life in such a way that your name would be magnified by those who see. 
hallowed be your name, and not just in my life, but in the heart of every living person in this world. Imagine a world where people of every tribe and different cultures and different nations and languages were all living for the sake of this one name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, would you make that happen? Cause your name to be hallowed. And we ask that you would show us more and more the power and the beauty and the saving grace of your name. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us how to pray. You didn't leave us guessing. We know what pleases the Father's heart. And so would you help us to pray in this way and change us so that this prayer could become more and more a reality in this world. And I want us to take a moment now and we're gonna pray these words and, and just asking for God to not let us kind of hydroplane through this, but to long to see this happen. The God of the universe has asked you to come before him and to beg for this to happen. Let's pray these words together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.